Daniel Casey, long time coming. How are you, buddy? Yeah, thanks. I'm excited to be on. This is only fun. Yeah, finally, man. Yeah, you've got a wild story, man. You've gone, you've gone to the mountaintop, achieved mastery in one aspect of your life, kind of went, got knocked back off the mountain. And then you said, okay, cool. It's time to climb again. And now you've climbed a higher mountain and you're looking up over the top, man. It's pretty cool to have watched your journey from afar. And now we get an intimate peek behind the curtain of what made you you. So I'd love for you to introduce yourself to the audience about where you are today, and then let's go back and dissect this piece by piece, man. We'll start with the kind of the mindsets and the lessons learned on the journey in the first half, and then we'll get into your multifamily and the dollars and data in the back. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, where I'm at today, I'm Daniel Casey. I'm, I live up in Tacoma, Washington. I'm married with three kids. My wife and I have been married for going on 24 years, coming up Ooh. here, so 23 years. I've got a I've got an 18 year old daughter who's a freshman in college. I've got a 14 year old son who's an eighth grader and an 11 year old daughter who's a fifth grader. So we're on the second half of our parenting journey with young kids. So to go and what we do now, like we right now we own and operate multifamily. We have about 300 apartment units in Tacoma. We also have a a hotel, an office building, and a couple of other commercial properties, and we basically operate those full time. Now going back. So when I start, I started my career, I graduated from UCLA in 1998, and I was pretty convinced at that point in time that I was going to be an accountant. I, I have a degree in mathematics and finance, and I was planning to be a CPA. So I got a job out of college working for KPMG, which was a large mm. accounting firm. And I realized pretty darn quick that I hated it. And I was working for a, I was working for a partner who did a lot of state and local tax stuff. And so we were primarily, we were constantly flying to various state capitals. So like in my first, yeah, I don't even know, first six months, I was probably working primarily out of like Baton Rouge, Louisiana and Tallahassee, Florida. I ended up spending quite a bit of time in Sacramento and Salem. And I just, it was that type of job where you flew out Sunday evening and you didn't get back or you didn't get home till like late Friday night. And it was just completely incompatible with any sort of quality of life. I, as soon as I started, I realized I wasn't going to do that. I actually never even took the CPA exam. I was working in Florida at the time. And instead of flying home to take the exam, I flew to Southern California to spend the weekend with my now wife. A couple of years, I ended up staying at KPMG about two and a half years before starting a construction company. And I had no background in construction. I had framed houses for one summer in college. And that was like my only like little tiny, you know, sliver of information about the construction industry. But I had a friend of mine who we became partners and we decided that we would start a bridge construction company because we wanted to do something in public works so that we could be the, so that you didn't have to convince anybody to hire you. You simply had to be the lowest bidder. And so we just got, we just got our start that way. Our, my very first construction project ever, we were doing a seismic retrofit on a concrete bridge over some railroad tracks. And we were, and back in those days, it was him and I doing all the labor ourselves. We hired our first employee about two thirds of the way through that project. What drunk conversation led to you being like, okay, accountant, screw this. I'm not going to take my CPA. Obviously, we need to go build bridges. What? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there really wasn't a ton of logic. It was, we had, <clears throat> my partner's father was a civil engineer and he had worked previously for the state DOT. And then he had a consulting business where he did lots of different kind of consulting work related to related to bridges. So that was our insight into the world of bridges. But honestly, it just seemed like a, 
I don't know, obviously looking back, it sounds ridiculous, but it seemed like a relatively easy market to get into because there just wasn't a ton of competition. Fair. Yeah. Anyhow, we became quite good at it. In the beginning, we, in the beginning, we knew absolutely nothing. We have, I mean, like the first time I ever poured concrete that wasn't for a fence post, it was doing this pier widening, like 20 feet above railroad tracks. And I knew, we knew nothing about what we were doing. I remember conversations. That terrifies me, Daniel. Yeah. That terrifies me. (laughs) To my knowledge, it's still standing. But we had conversations with the inspector, the county inspector on that project, where he would say stuff like, so you guys have your adobe blocks for tomorrow's pour? And we'd say, oh, yeah, of course, we're all ready. We got them. And like literally we'd go back to the car and Google what's adobe block because we had no idea. So we were just we were completely learning on the fly. So what ends up happening, man? You were there with that contracting business for years, right? Yeah. So we basically operated that business from 2000 to 2010. So it's 10 years. And in that time, we grew. We were never a giant. We were never a huge, com- huge company. We, we specialized in seismic retrofits and repairs. Like we used to, we used to say that we liked projects that were too complicated for the little guys yet too small for the big guys. So most of our jobs were given the 250,000 to $3 million range. And over that 10 year period, we did, I don't remember the exact numbers, something 70 some odd seismic retrofits in Washington, Oregon and California. Plus we did a handful of widenings and some other jobs like that. We got fairly proficient at it. It started out a little bit rough. I think there's, I think there's something to be said there. There's a lesson there in what you said about like the niche that you guys discovered. Because I'm finding, I find that in real estate a lot, and I find that in business a lot, where you want to tackle a problem that's not so easy that everyone's doing it, but also it's not too large scale that the big money and the big guys are super interested in it. So finding that little sweet spot in between. So like for businesses, I think that's between that two to five, like 200,000 to like 5 million range or something was along the lines where it's underneath the PE window where they're going to come in and get it. And then it's the same thing with like multifamily that maybe that 20 to 200 unit is a little bit beneath the window of the big guys. So it's a pretty cool philosophy to implement is looking out at your competitive landscape and saying, okay, what's something that's got a bit of a barrier to entry, but the big guys aren't wanting to take a crack at this. I think that's a cool niche to find yourself in. So you make it yeah. to the mountaintop with this contracting company. What happens next, man? I'm not sure I would describe it as the mountaintop, but so what happened with the contract? <laughs> make it 10 years. You make it 10 years of working contracting. We what? were doing well. We were doing well and we were growing. And by the by the time we get out into 20, 2008, 2009, we were doing about $5 million a year worth of work, which for a small contractor was pretty good. And our profit margins were pretty good on that work because we were in this little niche without much competition. But then the in the global financial crisis, that really hit our industry pretty hard and it hit it a little bit different than it did the housing industry. I don't know if, you know, for people who remember the talk back then, there was a lot of talk about these shovel ready projects and that was going to be the rescue for the, for the economy. And so as there was almost nothing going on in commercial or residential construction, there was all of a sudden trillions of dollars set aside to do all of these turnkey public works projects, which on the surface you would think would be great, but what happened was it was a twofold. On one hand, every contractor who was determined to stay in business became a public works contractor. And so all of a sudden, it, projects that would have typically had two or three bidders on them were having like 20 or 22. There was one round of work we won at the very end where 
there was like 22 bidders on these projects. And ordinarily there should have been like two to four. So the, the space got really crowded. The profit margins went to almost nothing because all these contractors were primarily concerned with staying in business, not really trying to make money. And then on the other side, you've got all of these public agencies that are all of a sudden flush with cash, but don't really have the internal capacity to administer the volume of projects that they were trying to do. And the combination of those two things more or less, more or less took us down. Like we, we basically at some point just decided that we, that it wasn't worth, it just wasn't worth moving forward. We were, there was no money in the niche of work that we had previously been doing. And so anyhow, so we dissolved that company in 2010. And then my partner and I went separate ways. And so I went back, I started another construction company and, but there wasn't much work to be had. So in 20, 2011, 2012, 2013, we were just doing whatever we could to Whatever we could describe, by, we started doing from our bridge background, we knew a little bit about concrete and demolition and things like that. So I was doing the concrete cutting demolition. We were just doing whatever work we could find primarily as a subcontractor. And then, and then it slowly started gaining some momentum again, 2013, I think we got our first contract as a GC and then 20, 2014, 15, 16, we started getting larger and larger contracts. And by 2016, we were doing multi-million dollar renovation work for some large for some large senior living and apartment owners. And that's really what opened our eyes to the idea of multifamily or the idea of, you know, being the owner. So walk me through that transition period between you being like, okay, I've got this business. It's printing out some cash flow for me. It's supporting me and my family. And then you see these apartments that you're working on. What was the appeal? What was the allure when you were looking at these? Were you talking to owners? Were you realizing what was in the background? What made you decide to pull the trigger and start working on that and building wealth instead of just cash flow? So it wasn't all it wasn't all at once. Like the first thought I remember having, there was one random Sunday morning. It, this was sometime in 2016, and I just remember going down some sort of a rabbit hole. Like I think I don't know if you ever read the news on CNBC, but I think I was reading the news on CNBC, and on Sundays they tend to do a lot of like kind of the personal development sorts of articles. So. For what for whatever reason, I mean, I wasn't even a regular reader of this, but for whatever reason, I just started reading article after article and I was getting interested in this idea that maybe that there was more. And it was, I think, this realization that at that point in time, I had been a contractor for basically 16 years and we had always earned a fair income, but we really had nothing to show for it. And like more specifically, at that point in time, I owned a duplex and I owned an office building and I owned a small industrial building. And the duplex I had purchased as my first home that I lived in, it was, we house hacked it before that was a thing. And then the office building we had picked up in 2009, simply because we needed an office for the construction company, we didn't wanna pay anybody rent. And then the industrial building, similarly, we had picked up because we needed a yard and a shop. And they were never meant to be investments, but sitting there in 2016, I realized that basically my entire net worth was wrapped up in those three assets. And it was this light bulb goes on that says, gosh, you've been a contractor for 16 years. And the only thing you have to show for it is the miscellaneous real estate you picked up. That wasn't, but my first inkling, my first thought wasn't go buy a bunch of real estate. My first thought was I just need to do something other than contracting. And so I started exploring businesses that had more residual income and kind of more intrinsic value. And I actually thought, I actually went pretty far down the path of starting a property management company. So I thought that would be a, that, that seemed to appeal to me because of the recurring revenue nature of it. But thankfully we never actually started a property management company. 
So why are property management companies bad? I haven't really heard of one that's pretty successful unless it's an internal operation. Why'd you say no to the property management? Why are you glad? I'm not sure. I'm not sure why exactly I didn't. Like I was looking at a franchise opportunity and in the end, the opportunity got pulled out from under me. Like the fran- the area I wanted to purchase became unavailable and they said I could take another area and I really didn't want to move. So the opportunity just went away. But in retrospect, I'm glad we didn't do that because it would have certainly distracted us from what we did end up doing. In 2016, 2017, I'm wrestling with this whole knowing I don't want to just be a contractor forever, knowing I'm trying to find something with a little more residual income. And it's in that time frame where we're, we do these, we do a handful of pretty large construction projects for a national senior living owner. And we got a little insight into the numbers on these jobs. Like they had bought a portfolio of three three senior living facilities from another operator. And then they were basically doing value add improvements to upgrade the facilities, upgrade the common areas. They were doing some amount of unit renovations and ultimately increasing the rents and improving the operations. And we did, so they spent about $20 million on these three properties. We did about $7 million worth of work between the three of them. And somebody told me after we were wrapping up our projects that they were worth about 45 million post the renovations. And that was the first time the light bulb went off and was like, <laughs> ding, okay, ding, we're, ding. On wrong, we're on the wrong end of this transaction. We need to figure out how we be the owner. And so that was when I really started looking into how does one, how does one own commercial real estate like that? I started listening to bigger pockets and reading books on the subject and all that. So that was what first opened my eyes to this idea of owning buildings. All right. So walk us through the transition between the time that you made the realization, we'll call it the great awakening, and then the time where you actually went under contract on your first property. It was a two-year window, correct? Yeah, it was somewhere in that. It probably wasn't a full two years, but it was somewhere. I don't remember the exact timeline, but somewhere in that 2016-2017 timeline is when I first had my eyes opened and started tinkering with this idea of buying commercial real estate. And it was October of 2018 when we finally closed on our first property. And in that time frame, one, what I'm doing now is not what I thought I was doing then. My plan at the time was still to make money as a contractor and then invest it in real estate. As I was watching, as I was listening to Bigger Pockets and reading books, I was putting together a plan where I was going to basically buy one property a year for the next 10 years. And then 10 years from then, I would have had 10 commercial properties. And at that point, I'd be able to retire from construction and live off of the passive income from these properties. And and that's not how it ended up. But you asked about the first property. The first property I bought is actually the only property that I've ever done any sort of cold calling to get. I spent a grand total of one day calling a list of owners in in the city that I live in. And one of those first dozen phone calls turned into an opportunity to buy a, to buy an eight unit property and we ended up buying it. And then even though that worked so well, I never called another owner again. <laughs> hey, one phone call changed the trajectory of your life, man. Yeah, it's pretty sure. wild. If you could go back and now knowing what you know now, talking to that guy that was between 2016, 2018, we'll call it a year and a half just to make it easy. What would you have done differently to speed that process up? It's a good question. I don't, I guess I don't, I don't feel like the process was particularly slow. So part of it, I'm not sure that speeding it up would have been necessarily the goal, but I guess when I, when we first got into it, 
we didn't really understand enough about how multifamily worked. Like I didn't, like I said, like our intention was to buy these as investments and then, and still continue to earn money in construction. And now we've realized that we're, our business model now looks a lot more like a developer. Like we make the money, we make our living in the redevelopment and the operations of these properties. And so I think if I would have had that realization up front that, hey, you could do this instead of being a contractor, and I probably just would have set things up a little different. I might have cut the cord on the construction company a little sooner. Ultimately, I'm not, like I said, it was, it's gone pretty quick. So I'm not, I don't know that I'd be trying to go speed it up. Yeah, the frame of reference that I'm asking the question from is that of somebody that's listening to this podcast that's doing their job, doing their work, and they decided they want to go into multifamily real estate. And it takes them two or three years or four years or five years of analysis paralysis before they actually do it. I'm trying to figure out that's the frame that I'm asking the question in is how can what's some advice that we can give to listeners so that they can be able to take massive levels of action and not get caught into analysis paralysis? Yeah, I think the simple answer is you just got to go do it. I think most people who are, at least in people I talk to, people that are stuck in that analysis paralysis, they are looking at the outcomes as binary. They all they see the best case and the worst case. And the reality is neither of those are probably all that likely. And I think for the most part, on the surface, none of the projects we've ever bought have gone as we expected them to. Most of them have gone better than we expected them to, but in different ways. And I think you just have to get out there and uh, you got to get out there and get started. Realizing that the worst case scenario is probably a very low probability. And ultimately, if you can trust yourself to make good decisions and react to whatever life may bring, that you can, you can weather, you can learn your way through it, I guess is probably a good way to say it. There's, you can only learn so much by listening to podcasts and reading books. At some point in time, you actually have to get out there and do it. Yeah. So so you take down this eight unit. How did you scale from the eight to where you are today? Because you said your acquisition process in the first one was cold call. It said, you said that you never cold called again. So how did you get the remainder of your deals? So we, from that, the, we bought that first eight unit building and we, we basically took that one all the way through. So we had, I had, we had a small amount of money that we had made through the construction industry, through the construction company. And we used that as the down payment on what we, with a hard money loan. So we did, we used it. We used a hard money lender for that first eight unit building. It was a 15% down, 85% financed, you know, arrangement. So we basically had about $250,000 that we put down on the, on the building and the renovations. And then we basically worked that one all the way through. Like by the time we were done, we had spent about 1.1 million on the acquisition plus the renovations. It appraised for 1.9 million. We were able to refinance it for just under 1.4. So we basically got all of our money back plus an extra $300,000 or so of cash. And then we went and we bought a 12 unit building and we bought that building simply from a broker that I had met along the way that brought me the opportunity. It was a, it was a really distressed building. Like it was a complete slumlord situation of those 12 units. Most of them didn't even have functional water. None of them had heat. It was like a real, it was in really bad shape, but we just did the same thing. We took out, we used another hard money lender, um, bought that 12 unit building, did the work on it. We're basically burying these apartment buildings. So we went from the eight unit to the 12 unit. We bought a 10 unit that we used seller financing on. It was again, brought to me by a broker relationship that I knew. And then we bought a 30 unit building that was a listed property just on the market, but it was again, a broker connection who, you know, who brought it to my attention. And so then, so anyhow, that's the, that's how it scaled up. It went eight 
to 12 to 10 to 30. And then the next building we bought was a 64 unit. And that was a kind of a different setup. That was a listed property, but it was also a much larger acquisition. We, that was the first building in which we used any kind of outside capital to help with the acquisition. Can you talk about developing broker relationships? Because that's a recurring theme is that the closer you are with your brokers and your bankers, the better this entire process is. So over and over again, I interview multifamily guys and they're like, okay, I've got at least 10 different relationships with local credit unions or local banks. And they know at least 10 to 20 different brokers where they know the broker, they know the name of their kid, they know where they go to vacation in Florida, they know everything about them. So I'm curious if you can give some best practices for building these relationships with these brokers. <laughs> it might be the anomaly, but I'm not, I don't have 10, 10 relationships with local banks and I don't have 10 relationships with local brokers. Most of these deals have all come through two or three relationships that I have with some guys. And I think what I've focused on is being really clear on what I'm looking for. So I think that was, that was advice I had heard over and over on bigger pockets way back in the beginning was to get really clear. If you talk to somebody, don't tell them, Hey, I'm looking to buy multifamily say, Hey, I'm looking to buy 10 to 20 unit multifamily in these neighborhoods that has this level of that's this level of distressed or this type of format or whatever. And so by just being really clear, when I talk to people, I think it helps people think of me when they see something that matches that criteria, but I'm not a particularly social person. That's not my, that's not my strength. Like I don't, I'm not the, I'm not a networker and ever have been, I don't go out and I don't attend meetups and meet all these people. And you so what I have done, huh, what's that? You just build bridges. Yeah, exactly. So I, what I have done is just when I do get an opportunity, like when somebody cold calls me and says, Hey, I'd like to go get lunch. I just say yes. And I show up and every now and then one of those lunches turns into a really cool relationship. That's actually the, that's how I, the 30 unit building, the 10 unit seller finance building, the 30 unit building and the 64 unit building are all the result of a broker who cold called me and wanted to take me to lunch. And I just said yes. And we developed from there. Man, the irony with me is I'm the opposite. I'm very extroverted. But if somebody asks me to lunch or dinner, it's most of the time a no. Because that's just, <laughs> it feels so heavy for me, man. I don't know. Like doing a call or doing a podcast is very light for me. But doing, going, having to go in my car, drive out to lunch, drive out to dinner. I'm just like, oh, man, <laughs> can we just do a phone call? <laughs> can we get to know each other? <laughs> Man, but I love that. That's that's very practical to use. So walk through how you view the value of multifamily differently in closing. Because you mentioned this to me at the very beginning when we were talking about what to talk about on this podcast. And I think that's a pretty interesting perspective you have about the intrinsic value of multifamily. Yeah. So this is something that as we've gotten as we've gotten more mature in the way we look at multifamily and how we look at our operations. One thing that we, we consider ourselves to be value add investors. And I feel like that's a term that gets thrown around a lot. Everybody you ever talk to will tell you that they're a value add investor. But what I've realized is that most people, maybe that's an overgeneralization. A lot of people, when they say that they're a value add investor are referring to the monetary value of the apartment building. So they're basically, their strategy might look something like, I'm going to buy this property for such and such a cap rate. And then I'm going to increase rents and I'm going to decrease expenses and maybe I'm going to spend a little bit of money on renovations. And then, and then the idea would be is that after they've improved the NOI, they've increased the value and therefore they're a value add investor. 
And so what we've looked at is we've said, look, like the like the monetary value of an apartment complex is primarily made up of three things. Like you've got the intrinsic value of the housing. At the end of the day, apartment buildings are the the only real value in an apartment building is as a is as a home. So you've mm -hmm. got the you've got the intrinsic value of the physical space and the services you layer on top of it, and that's the value it has to a human being living in that apartment building. And then secondarily, you have what's the market value of the rent. So depending on where that you know, bundle of physical space and services is located will dictate what that's worth in the marketplace. Like the same apartment with the same services is going to be worth more in San Francisco than it's going to be worth in Minnesota or, or wherever. And so that's the market value of the rent. And then the third component is what's the capitalization rate that an investor is willing to pay for that stream of, for that stream of income. And so that's, we talk about it as a cap rate. And again, that also changes um, market to market, or it can go up and down depending on the economy. And so somehow the combination of those three things, the intrinsic value of the housing, the value for the rent value in your particular market, and then the cap rate that an investor is willing to pay on that income stream determines what the actual value of the asset is. But of those three things, we can only really control the intrinsic value of the apartment. Correct. We can make, we can try to make good choices about we might want to be in markets where we've got solid fundamentals in terms of population growth or income growth. And we can certainly try to speculate on what we think the longer term economies are going to do. But at the end of the day, we really have virtually no control over either of those two things. But what we can control is the quality of the physical space and the quality of the services that we layer on top. And so we just really focus heavily on that. We look for opportunities where we can significantly improve the utility of that apartment to the end user. So we're primarily looking for areas where we're trying to find very underutilized assets in typically A neighborhoods. And we do a lot of really heavy renovation to transform the product into something totally different. But it's always done with this mind of how is this going to positively affect the people who live in this community? And also how can we put really high quality services on top of it and create a good living experience. I think a lot of people don't, a lot of people underestimate the percentage of multifamily that is the services component compared to mm -hmm. single family homes. And when you buy a single family home, or I should say, when you rent a single family home, you're paying maybe a small little tiny bit for the management services. At most it's 10% of the monthly rent, right? When you live in an apartment community, that services component is probably way closer to 30 to 40, maybe even 50% of the rent you're paying in some places. And so I think a lot of operators, they focus on, they focus on the location, they focus on the market rent, maybe they focus on the renovations and providing a certain type of, of finish quality. But I think a lot of operators really underestimate the value they can bring by providing premium levels of service. And so we really focus on that. I agree 100%. So what's the vision for the next couple of years? We're, so we have about 300 units right now in our local market. And so we'd like to build that. We'd like to build our unit count up to something in the neighborhood of 2,000 units in our local market. And then we'd like to expand this model into some other similar markets that kind of have similar economic demographic structures, Tacoma. But I mean, we're really focused on being like a premier operator. I like the model. I like the model of being an owner operator. And in my, in my observation, somewhere around 2000 units is a good, 
that's a good size where you can have a, a really high quality, efficient operation without, without kind of saturating any given market, but, but essentially build a brand within that market so that tenants understand that you are the premium operator and that your properties are where they want to live. And we're going to, we're going to do that in Tacoma and then we're going to do it throughout the Western U.S. I love it, brother. Where can people find you and learn more about what you're doing? I'm on Facebook. They can, I'm happy to give out my email address. I'm Daniel at BlackRockNW, like Northwest.com. I'm on LinkedIn, but I never check it. So you to get a hold of me. <clears throat> but you can also, we've got, a, we've got a website out there, North40Capital.com. You can you know, get more information about us there. Awesome. Man, dude, I appreciate it. I appreciate you coming on so much, man. I'm excited to watch you on your hunt from 300 to 2,000 units. I think you're doing things the right way. I think you'll get there faster than you anticipated. So with that, man, appreciate you coming on. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. All right, everyone. This has been Daniel Casey and Brian Lubin with the Action Academy Podcast signing off.